0: Okay, we're going to 2nd Peter tonight, verse 10 and 11 of chapter 2, 2nd Peter 2, verse 10 and verse 11, every week I get artwork on my door, which I eventually stick on the door, but I always put it in a little pocket uh, on my door, uh, to Pastor Bob from, question mark, question mark, question mark, that's the way it always starts, I Still don't know who this is. And I'm not trying to figure it out. But I know somebody is really doing well. They are like wandering stars. I like the way they start off. Wondering. Instead of wandering. But they destroy. It will get you on the wrong course. A false teacher, A wandering star leads you away. It goes where it wants. But God is able... They have crapped in, right? that's the artwork on the prize, it's kind of fun. On the back, if I started reading how many times it says God is able, we'll be here all night long. Because that's what they kept saying, God is able, God is able, God is able, that's what's written all over this page, God is able. And they say, you know what, that's really cool. Repetition helps doesn't. it? And think, some child here has written that so many times, they're never going to forget that phrase, God is able. I said, that is cool. I like that. So I stick it up on the door because I hope they do it again next week. And if they see it there, they say, ooh, I better do that again. So I've got some wonderful pieces of art up there. But uh, I like the way they keep repeating the fact God is able. When we're in Second Peter chapter 2, we're not in the prettiest chapter of the Bible. This is really, really tough stuff. And the first nine verses we've been working with for several weeks... And it's about the fact that God, according to verse number 9, can do two things perfectly, and yet even simultaneously. He is able, as it starts in verse number 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He set this, this statement up saying, God can rescue you, godly person, and God can punish you, unrighteous person, at the same time. And he gave several examples of them. One was Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we read Lot's story. And Lot didn't go out of there so willingly. He had to be drug out. And that's literally the Greek words there. They drug him out. (laughs) But uh, still, God was able rescue him, while well, it's raining brimstone on the rest of them. In Noah's case, which is one of the examples, not to Noah, Noah in the Bible, alright? But it could be for you, listen, alright? He's able to preserve him in an ark while he is destroying the world with water. And I said, imagine the pressure of that water coming down. We just think rain. Right. The waters from the deep bursts open The waters from above came down. I wonder if it was like a sandwich and smashed thing. And yet that ark was not a that's pretty cool to think about how God is able to do this. And Peter's writing to those who are in the midst of persecution. And what's worse, there's false teachers among them. It's hard enough to go through persecution with that too. I mean, some of us would say, just give me the persecution, Don't, don't mix false teachers in with the mix. And that's what these folks were facing. It was like a pressure from below and a pressure from above. And it was crushing them. And as Peter writes to them, he says, oh, but God knows how to do this. And I love verse 9 because it's refreshing in the midst of the rest of this chapter. Because he goes through a lot of detail about how bad the false teachers are. And so we're going to look at this a little bit here as we walk through verse, or chapter 9, verse 10, and verse 11, where it says, And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. It's an odd section, an odd set of verses to read. But um, we know what Peter's desire is for these folks that he's writing to. And he says it there at the very end. He says, our job is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I will stress that every single sermon I can't. That's what we're called to do, to keep growing. And if we don't grow, we're going to end up what verse 17 says in chapter 3, falling falling for the the uh, deception of unprincipled men i can guarantee you how to fall for a false teacher don't grow if you don't spend your time growing to be like christ you are going to be susceptible to falling to a false teacher that's sad to say And what I also notice about chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, there's no middle place to stop between the two. Either you're growing or you're likely to fall. It would be nice if he says, oh, but it's just a little plateau. You could stop and rest in between those two verses. And that's not true. Because I tend to think that the the Christian maturity, we talk about growing physically, mature we we start from babies and we grow up and we get stronger and we get bigger and all those kind of things but in the Christian walk I believe you can grow and you can fall back and you can grow and you can fall back and there's too many examples of that by the way of people who do and I don't want to be a fallbacker do you? I don't want to go and become susceptible to false teaching and that's what Peter sets up at the very last two verses but the other danger they're in was in chapter 1, verse 9. Those who are not growing, not only are they not useful, as verse number 8 would say, they're not useful and they're not fruitful, but it says in verse number 9 that they also lack qualities, and they're blind, and they're short-sighted, and they forgot that they've been forgiven of their sins. They forgot. Could you imagine as a believer forgetting that you have been forgiven? To get so deep into sin that you don't remember Christ died for that? That'd be, that'd be horrific to me to be that far back that I forgot that he forgave me. I mean, we're told to remember his his uh table, aren't we? In remembrance of me. We we are told to remember him, that he died, he gave his body for us, he gave his blood for us. We're told to remember that. And it's interesting that those who are not growing in Christ tend to be forgetful too. They forget he died for them. They forget he forgave them. And they get involved in those sins again. And it it blinds them, it makes them short-sighted. So with that as a background, this is what Peter is addressing in Second Peter 2 about those who indulge in the flesh. Now, we can go to all kinds of interesting passages. Let's, let's put a bookmark here for a minute. We're going to travel a little bit. Go back to Galatians 5. If I said Galatians 5 and you're a Bible memory guy or gal, what are you thinking right now? Fruit and spirit verse 22, 23 it's funny we can preach all day long on those verses but we rarely go to verse 19 before it the works of the flesh if you're not doing the deeds of the spirit guess what you're likely to be doing the deeds of the flesh and they're in opposition to one another if we read the whole chapter we're supposed to walk by the spirit so we don't carry out the desires of the flesh but look at verse 19 and look at the list the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Did I just read off the newspaper to you? All those characteristics, have you seen them in our society? They're everywhere! And they're right, and they're not hidden anymore, are they? A lot of these are just so blatantly out front. Here's my fear, though. Peter's writing to the church. I mean, Paul was here, writing to the church. And unfortunately, these things are in the church too. When when John wrote his gospel, chapter three. Now I say John chapter three, and what do you immediately think? Verse 16, right? For God so loved the world. Look at the rest of the passage. Start in verse 19. John 3, verse 19. This is another passage. We don't go all the way down and talk about the rest of this. Verse 19. For this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. This is powerful. I aim at my Greek students there in the back. Agape love, right? Powerful love. Strongest we talk about. We so put it in that list. Agape, phileo, oh, you know, eros. We go through that list. This is the only time the word is used in the negative. Isn't that powerful? We're told to love God like this word. We're told to love one another like this word. And what are they doing with it? Loving darkness with that same passion. Isn't that powerful? It's like, you can't use our word. I've heard people say agape is a divine word. It's reserved only for God. Till you get to this verse, and that's not a pretty picture. And it goes on. Look at verse number 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Boy, that's pretty strong, isn't it? The first, verse 19, they love the darkness. In verse 20, they hate the light. And they don't want the light to shine because they don't want their deeds exposed. Okay, so those, who are these men? Who who are these men that love darkness? Who are these men that hate the light? Peter would say, those are the people who have snuck into your church. That's the kind of people they are. False teachers are those kind of people. And that's sad to think that we could say, well, it's out there. We've seen it out there. It's out in the world around us. But it's really scary when we say it's in the pews, or it's in the pulpit, or it's in the Sunday school room. That's pretty serious stuff. Notice what Peter starts with. Now go back to Peter. He's talking about those who are kept as unrighteous people under... Punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 9 was right there, and we're still on the context, okay? We're still pulling off from there, and it says uh, in verse number 10, and, see, he's not done with his thought, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. What's he comparing this to? Watch this list. If you start all the way up to verse number 2, These false teachers are described as many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and God's going to judge them. God didn't spare angels when they sinned, verse number 4. God didn't spare the ancient world when it sinned, but He spared Noah. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah when they sinned, but He saved Lot. And then it gets down to verse number 10. Now look at the list. False teachers, greedy people, exploiting people, the world of sinful angels, the world of sinful pre-flood individuals, the world of sinful Sodom and Gomorrah residents, and the Lord says, and especially... It's like, he's pointing his finger at, see, I judge them. And he said, "What? that was severe judgment. And I judged them. Yes, that was severe judgment. And I judged them. And that was really severe judgment. And God says, and especially, can you see it ramping up? This to him is worse than what happened at the flood. Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Worse than the angels that sinned. Just by the use of that word. And especially... What does God think of false teachers now? I I just, comparison-wise, it's like, whoa, it's a pretty tough address here. Especially, the way he starts it, he says, especially these ones. What are they? Well, let's start walking through it here. Uh, Verse number nine. Especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. Stop right there first. These are the ones who indulge in corrupt desires. Let me read it to you in the Greek. It's interesting. They pursue as in hot pursuit. It's pretty fast moving. Alright? The flesh in the whole sphere of passionate and violent desires of pollution. That's the Greek said. It's like, ooh, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? When I was a student at Moody, I helped out in... For about a year, I was working in one of the dorms, the guys' dorm. Um, And my job, including cleaning and all that stuff, and, you know, guys just aren't very clean. And cleaning up after them is not always that easy. And we fill up giant containers of trash, big ones on wheels that can hold three or four or five people inside of it. They're so big. And we'd fill that thing with trash and take it all the way down through the tunnel system in the basement. And there was a, an old elevator we'd get on and pull the old handle, you know, doors down and all that service elevator style and go up to a dock area. And we'd go across the dock, and there was a giant trash compactor. And we'd take it over there, and we'd dump the whole big cart into the trash compactor, push the button, and just watch it crush that stuff. They've been known to throw refrigerators in there and flatten them absolutely, you know, flat. And uh, they especially like to get the rats to fall in there before they push the button. We had we rat counts all the time, rat kills and stuff like that. But uh, that place stunk to high heaven. It was disgusting to go over there. I couldn't, I just wanted to dump it, push the button and run. It just smelled terrible. You got that terrible picture in your mind? These people love it. According to the Greek terminology, they pursue that pollution with intensity. Isn't that horrid? It just sounds so terrible. But that's what the false teachers were viewed at from God's perspective looking down. You say, man, I would have rather lived in Sodom and Gomorrah maybe than talk about these guys. Because they're especially sinful in God's eyes they pursue they are hot in pursuit that's the word here hot in pursuit for the things of the flesh they have a craving for it the passionate violent desires I I just can't overdo this that's the Galatians 5 passage that I read to you that's the John 3 uh, 19 and 20 passage I read to you they love the darkness I love it. And so they go after it with such violent desire. You know, there's a difference between these kind of people and what a Christian ought to think, obviously, right? But what did Paul do about sin in Romans chapter 7? He said, i got to get away from this thing. Who's going to set me free from this body of death? He couldn't stand it. He didn't want the stench of sin on him. He wanted to get away from it. And he says, I don't understand. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And he's wrestling with it. These guys don't wrestle. They look for it. You see the difference? That's the, the interesting craving about what they're about. They have a lust for pollution. What they needed to do was move to Gary, Indiana in the 1970s. That, they would have got plenty of pollution then. That place was disgusting to drive through, scary at times even at that. But we'd always have to go through it to see my dad at work. We go right down through the pretty bad places in Gary, Indiana, and at the time we were the murder capital of the world. Yeah, even worse than East Chicago. But you've seen both. It's like yuck. No, nobody wants to live in that. I mean, the, everything was brown. We never had white snow. It was always gray and black and everything. It was just disgusting. I I grew up in that. Charlotte knows what it's like. It's, it's not pretty. Who says, I want that? Who says, I love that? Who says, I mean, outside of Oscar the Grouch, maybe. He just lived in a garbage can and he loved trash, right? You ever hear his song, I Love Trash, and he just wanted everything just as bad as can be. But this is the way God describes them. They have a lust for pollution, an intense appetite for it. When Paul wrote to Titus, he said, these people have, as far as they're concerned, nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. Everything is defiled. Everything they touch, everything they think, everything they do is defiled. And Paul says, that's the way they are. And Peter says, they follow this way. They follow it in hot pursuit. I I read this and I say, boy, I don't want these people in our church <laughs> teaching our classes, you know, getting anywhere near our children. Do you? No. Oh, it's terrible. There's only one, one time, or a few times anyway, that this same word follow is used positively. And it's a word that Jesus would often tell to somebody like a disciple and say, follow me. He says, follow me, and he uses that word in hot pursuit to speak of their passion that they should have for wanting to be with the Savior. There's quite a contrast there. And, you know, I tend to think that we're going to be doing one or the other. There's very little in between grounds when you're talking about words like this. Because we do have passions for things, and I hope that our passion is for Christ. That we just can't get enough of him. We want to read more. We've got to read more. We've got to pray more. We've got to spend time more with him. I hope that's our passion. It would certainly be the contrast to this, wouldn't it? So there's the first setup here. He says, that's what they do. And the second thing they do, in verse number 10, if that's not bad enough, is that they despise authority. They despise authority. They really, this is the idea of the word... They downthink authority, whether it 's authority in general, authority of angels. It talks about angels a little bit in the passage, or even as Jude would say, the authority of the Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, they despise his authority and that that too is alarming to me. Um, they despise it, they think down on it as if they're higher. As if, as if they're as if they're above God and they could look down on him they're above Christ and they could look down on him that's their opinion they're bold ones it says bold the, the words here daring bold ones they 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 uh they're presumptuous here's some other words insolent they're impertinent they're brazen they're free from any constraint they're they're uh uninhibited they court danger, they're daring, they're daring. I wouldn't want to dare the Lord, would you? It's amazing to me, the people who do. I had a friend once, we were standing together on a, a platform in one of the churches, we were just talking about things, and he says, you know, persecution is really good for Christians. And I'm starting to say, okay, well, I understand the principle, but who really wants it? But he goes, boy, I wouldn't mind a little persecution. I think that, if, and I go, and I I said, I'm not going to say anything to you. <laughs> he just was like asking for it. And I said, who does that? Nobody just sits down and says, Lord, please, can I have a bunch of persecution today? These people dare the Lord. They, they stand up against him and they dare him. And you're saying, but that was Peter's day, that's the way it was. That's our day. There are people today in pulpits acting like this. There's one guy pastoring a church. He swore all the way through with bad language his sermons. And you say, really? Would you, would you go to a church like that? It filled with people because they thought it was okay to use words like that. And I'm saying, God said something about that. And I also think this. If God made that song, he could stop it too. Somebody misused his song, he could just, done with that song. This guy been in a pulpit into that. That hasn't been too many years ago. He was known as the swearing pastor. And that was his style every week. I said, where do you get the audacity to speak that way? Well, here's what it is. Number one, they have a very exaggerated opinion of themselves it says that they're arrogant or self-willed is the word you might have in your text here they're arrogant they they just do it to please themselves they exhibit self-importance they think i'm i'm better than everybody else you know paul told titus don't you dare pick an elder like that don't pick an elder who would be arrogant He goes on to other things about what they shouldn't be either. They're not to be pugnacious either. I love that word. Pugnacious. Prone to fighting. They're not supposed to pick a pastor like that. An elder like that. And what's interesting is the false teacher just lines up exactly like the ones we're supposed to avoid. But at the same time, these arrogant people seem to get some sort of advantage in churches because people are afraid of them. They're arrogant. And you know, when somebody puffs themselves up really big, you're afraid to say something. You're afraid to confront that person. You you don't know what they're going to do. You really want a pastor like that? I don't think so. But churches are full of boastful men. Arrogant men. Self... self uh, high opinion. They had a self-high opinion or self-importance of themselves. And God says in His Word elders should not be that way and a false teacher oh my that's one of their descriptions is arrogance and that's true more times than not if I find somebody teaching false I could show you that they're an arrogant person because it usually goes hand in hand it's usually right there they're arrogant remember when we were talking about the earlier section of Peter here Second Peter 2 Noah was a contrast to his society when God says, your society's terrible, I'm going to up, destroy him, it says, but Noah. A contrast. Lot was a continuation of his society. When God talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, and Lot. And Lot, you know the rest of his life, it wasn't pretty. He had to be drugged out of there too. He was a continuation of the very ugly, worldly stuff he was a part of. It was somehow in his blood as he left that place and he got into trouble for that too. Well, this is what's interesting. The false teacher or preacher or whatever have not only become more like the world, but they carry it into the church. They continue it into the church. Because this isn't something they just do at home. They do it here. That's what frightens me probably more than anything, is that they don't leave it outside the building. They carry it in. Their arrogance, their boldness, their, their uh, exaggerated opinion of themselves, that's one thing, and their excessive depreciation of others. You know, the only way up for them is to smash people before below their feet. That's how they get out. And so if anybody has some sort of a characteristic about them that puts them as somewhat of a leader in the church one way or the other, these people find that as competition. They have to get rid of them. They have to defeat them. They have to push them down so I can be bigger. So I can be bigger. We always play that little game at home uh, growing up. Since we lived on a hill, we called it King of the Hill. And one person stood at the top, and it was a grassy hill. And everybody else in the neighborhood tried to get up the hill. And the goal was to get up there and grab the guy and fling him down the side of the hill. It was kind of violent, and we hurt some bones every now and then. But it was fun. (laughs) But you, you had to defend your hill against 15 guys coming up there who wanted it. The goal was to push them down so you could stay up. We're not going to play that game. We don't have any hills like that here anyway, so that's okay. But uh, that's the picture of the false teacher. He wants on the top of the hill and he will push everyone down so he can stay there. He's that bold that he depreciates the value of everybody. That's nothing like our Savior. Our Savior became a servant. Didn't he? he? came to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2 says, he came down from heaven, took on the form of man, took on the form of a servant, went down through obedience to the point of death. He always was going down to each people. The false teacher is always going up to make himself better. Big difference. old John the Baptist sets the whole scene for us in one phrase he must increase and I must decrease that is not the motto of the false teacher that is not and you may say okay that's about people but trust me that's also about Christ too he depreciates the value of Christ because he wants it about himself he's there for himself he just wants to have the attention so he has no fear Uh, Of speaking against dignitaries, against angels, against things more powerful than him. He is so bold that he could blaspheme something. He he has no place of even talking about them in that way. But he despises authority. And he's daring and self-willed. And he doesn't tremble when they revile angelic majesty. You want to test yourself on how great you are? Go and try to mess with an angel. You ever study those guys? You don't want to mess with an angel. Alright? They're bigger than you. They're faster than you. They're wiser than you. They're more powerful than you. Angels are pretty good at their jobs. Good old Sennacherib and his group found out one night the angel was sent down to take care of the Assyrian army. 186,000 dead soldiers in the morning. It's like, wow, that was one angel. He has no trouble with man. None whatsoever. Book of Revelation, we went through that. How many times did God send the angels out to to just mow them down? So many times we have read of the power of an angel. And look at what a false teacher is willing to do. He's to blaspheme an angelic being, to revile him. I said, what? where's your brains in this? Who would do that? That's like finding one of those big electrical boxes on the wall that says caution all over it, opening it up and sticking your hand in on purpose. I mean, what's the smart to that? You're going to fry yourself. This guy, he has no trouble. He doesn't even tremble when he defames angelic majesty. And we're just talking about angels. We're not even talking about his opinion of God yet. But he's not afraid. Here's Warren Wearsby's comment: When ego is at stake, these apostates will stop at nothing in order to promote and protect themselves. There are no; sec- they are so secure in their pride that they even dare God to judge them. You say, really? Yeah, that's in chapter number three, verse uh, verse number four. Chapter three. They're saying. Where's the promise of his coming? The coming they're talking about is when God's coming to punish the world. And they said, Oh, it's not true. Where's the promise of his coming? Oh, he's not coming. He can't. He won't come. Matter of fact, he might be a little afraid of us. You know, there is one final battle before eternity kicks in. And that's a battle when Satan goes around the world and he seduces folks in the millennial kingdom to gather together and to stand up against the Lord. There's one straight face-to-face conflict between Satan's last chance and Jesus' king. And they grab that whole army and they surround the city that Jesus is in, There's Jerusalem. They surround it with multitudes of people. And they think, we've won. We've got him. He's surrounded. There's no hope. There's no chance. And Jesus really only has to say a word, and they're done. They're gone. Fire comes out. Whoosh. Done. That's pretty impressive. But Satan still thinks he could win this battle. So don't be surprised if he could induce his his false teachers to think they can too. And they go about this way reviling authorities. They 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 think too much of themselves, and they think so little of authority that's over them. It's astounding to me. They they blaspheme. Their pride is so great. There's no boundaries on the attacks that they put on other people. I'm going to read this to you. Honestly, you're going to think it's a part of a movement that's going through our land today. This was written back in the uh, 1700s, I think. But it sounds just like what you see on TV all the time in the big cities. Did I give enough clues? Let me read it to you, you'll get it. They regard, regard all government in the state, the church, and the families as evil. Advocates for unbridled freedom of all sorts, crying out on liberty and all the evils of oppression, defenders of what they regard as the rights of injured men, And yet secretly they themselves, lusting for the exercise of the very power which they would deny to others, they make no just distinction about what constitutes true freedom or in their zeal array themselves against government and in their zeal array themselves against government in all forms. No topic of discussion would be more popular than this. And from none would they hope to secure more followers. For it, if they could succeed in removing all respect for the just restraints of the law, the way would be open for the accomplishment of their own purposes. In setting up a dominion over the minds of others, it is a common result of such views that men of this description become impatient of the government of God Himself and seek to overthrow all authority and to live in the unrestrained indulgence of their own vicious inclinations. That's that's good for the news tonight. That's happening in our land. It is. That was written about false teachers in a commentary hundreds of years ago. And it's like, wow, they're here, aren't they? You ever take a good look at Psalm 2? You've heard of Psalm 2 before. Just take a peek at this for a minute. Psalm 2, it it describes these people perfectly. I'll get there. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, and how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Wow, the ink is wet on that one. That's what the Paul's teachers, even God today, would still tell them, Stop. Look at what you're doing and give God the respect he deserves. But that's not what their desire is, according to Peter. They go after angels who are greater in force, greater in power, greater in ability, and they think that they're more powerful than angels who really are more powerful. They have deceived themselves. John Calvin said, he displays their rash presumption in the fact that they dare to assume more freedom than the very angels themselves. Isn't that incredible to read this? Said, wow! You know what? Comes back to our thing. Who's able to deal with that? God is able. This doesn't make him break out in a sweat. He doesn't look down and say, oh no, what am I going to do? He knows what to do. And he's got a place reserved for people like that. But it's just the audacity that they have about them. That's why, if I could do anything I can to preserve a, a church fellowship that can walk in purity of doctrine, that would truly worship the Lord in reverence, that would live their lives out in keeping with obedience, that would seek to know him more and more and more and grow and grow and grow. That's what I want to be a part of. I don't want to spend every single day trying to figure out, how are we going to deal with a false teacher among us? The best remedy, the best defense, is, I say it in the morning too, stay close to the shepherd. That's what we're supposed to do. Grow in him and so that's where I'm going to leave us here tonight that's not a happy theme, I know <laughs> but it's necessary for us if we're going to understand the conflict we're living in today we've got to keep that understood so we're going to keep working on Peter next week, next week they're going to have this whole room changed by the time we get back here Sunday night and what we've done before we're doing it again we're going to have a VBS prayer meeting next Sunday night and we're going to be praying for the ministry of our our leaders and the kids that come in and all the other activities that will take place in the course of that week. So that's what we'll do next Sunday. All right? And we'll have plenty of reminders of it when we see the room. That'll be good. Okay. Uh Let's have a word of prayer. And let's stop there for the night.